For August 26, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 269. The role of the lightsaber is played by beer. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Tonight, the five musketeers are together. Uh, the three musketeers. Three musketeers. There were three musketeers that Alexander Dumas wrote about uh, in his non-fictional work, The Three Musketeers. And there are three of us here today. I thought Alexander <laughs> Dumas wrote the Bible. But no, no, no. Jesus wrote the Bible, Mark. Alexander oh, okay, Dumas okay, okay. wrote Family Circus. <laughs> no, he wrote The Three Musketeers. Look. The Three Musketeers is based on a true story, and it takes place in real time. <laughs> Uh, we will introduce everybody in just a moment. I'm so excited because today we saw – or not today, but this weekend we saw The World's End, uh, which I thought was fantastic. And I think some of the panel at least might agree with me. We will have to explore their opinions forthwith. But yes, Matt Rather is not with us today as he has been uh, co-opted by a robot and had to be super punched. <laughs> I mean it's not uh, really a ro- – there are only robots you know, because robots are slaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. He's a freelancer. That's right. <laughs> All right. So we miss Matt, and we hope that he, he recovers from his, uh, his, his blue goopness soon, and that he will be back with us forthwith uh, in the future. But in the meantime, you've already heard a little bit of, the, disc, of the, uh, the sweet sounds of our sweet, sweet panel. I'm Peter Fenzel, and I'll be hosting. So strap yourselves in. It's going to be a bumpy ride as we run a little golden mile here. Uh, the first member of the panel – oh, question of the week. We have to put aside all of our joyful Simon Pegg and Golden Mile discussions for just a moment because there is a matter of grave importance that is taking place this week that must be addressed. And we are, of course, talking about uh, Baffman, uh, uh, Ben Ben Man, Ben Affleck Man, Ben Affleck. Batfleck? Batfleck. There it is. There it is. Batfleck. Ben Affleck has been announced as the next Batman. I think it's the best decision I've ever heard in my life. I'm positive that everyone agrees with me in this determination. But panel, your question uh, for the for this podcast for this week. Which character played by Ben Affleck in a previous movie this whole time has secretly been Batman? We'll start with Mark Lee. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit worried about my answer for this because I'm kind of making this up on the fly here. Well, uh, you know what? Th- it sounds like that's what they're doing with this movie too, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with um, Bartleby, the angel Bartleby from Dogma. All right. <laughs> Just because um, I, I, I like the idea of – I've forgotten the plot of Dogma. I'm going to be honest. But I like the idea of some sort of high-cosmic <laughs> divine intervention – you know, uh, which has taken this fallen angel, uh, I believe that's what he is, right? Uh, and, you know, as some sort of, like, you know, eternal punishment for him has caused him to be consumed by this unending quest for vengeance, you know, and, and, and at the, at, after the result of, after his, uh, you know, his parents are brutally murdered in front of him. And, you know, he's like, constantly searching for vengeance and constantly never gets it. And as an ultimate punishment, he has to fight Superman, who's a god, basically. Right, right, right. So, sucks See, for him. <laughs> oh, so is Superman going to be played by Alanis Morissette in this movie, then? <laughs> <laughs> would, that, would that be a, ironic, unfortunate, or strangely apropos? 
Yeah. I think it would be all three. By the way, the plot of Dogma is that falling angels try to take advantage of a plenary indulgence offered by a New Jersey cathedral by a, a, a cardinal of questionable integrity and judgment, played by George Carlin. Uh, and these fallen angels attempt to take advantage of the indulgence to wipe their slates clean and ascend back to heaven. But uh, due to the logic of forgiveness, this would prove God fallible and the universe would come to an end. And that is what the problem is. Alinda uh, Fiorentino is it, I think? plays uh, the last descendant of Christ who must uh, meet Jay and Silent Bob and stop these angels from doing this thing. And one of them is Batman. So there you go. Um, just in case, just in case. By the way, I moved this weekend, guys. So if I sound different, if I have different ambiance, it's because I'm in a new Fens cave here in lovely Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm also a little punchy. So Pete, I already you, said buckle up. So yeah, what's up? Do you have a new internet service provider at your new address? <laughs> uh, no, I'm still with uh, lovely Comcast. Ah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, he, here's hoping that, you know, the people I'll be dealing with here, um, you know, they don't know the people who dealt with me there. They haven't really talked about me <laughs> at the water cooler. It's like, this guy does a lot of talking about movies. All right, Jordan Stokes, what's your answer for the Affleck question of the week? I feel like we should have an Affleck question every week. Yeah, your pre-question. Should we have an Affleck question every week? And what should next week an Affleck question be? Okay, so first question, yes. Second question, um, Daredevil. Because Batman is a movie superhero that people care about, Ooh. and therefore his secret identity is the last place anyone would ever look. He's going to hide in plain sight, <laughs> which is ironic because he can't see. Right, right. <laughs> Do you think Batman is blind? Has Batman been blind this whole time? Like Daredevil? It would make, would a, heck of a, little, would make a lot of sense, right? Bat- blind as a, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good. So that's actually probably a clue that's been in there the whole time. So, so is he still Matt Murdock, the attorney, pretending to be Daredevil, pretending to be Batman? Is it just like Matryoshka of identities? Is he like no, 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 no. It's, it's Matt Murdock pretending to be Daredevil, pretending to be Bruce Wayne, pretending to be Batman. Oh, right. so Daredevil has to take his Daredevil suit off to reveal a slick Dolce and Gabbana number that he got for uh, – does Dolce and Gabbana make men's clothes? Versace was a better joke for that. Uh, and then Versace stri- puts on the rubber <laughs> the nipples. What? Yeah, I, think that, I think that if Bruce Wayne goes up to Dolce and Gabbana and asks them to make, them, make him a suit, you know, they, will, they will make him that suit. Yeah. It's uh, – where do you get all these wonderful shoes? Uh, <laughs> What exactly was that accent? Oh, uh, that, that, that was not. That was that was. I think that was. That was like, like Wario from the old country. Toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? I'm a wow. I'm a queen. <laughs> Wario is Batman. I'm calling that right now. That by the time this production is over, they are gonna kick. Ben Affleck off the project and replace him with Wario, who will play Batman in the Batman Superman movie. Superman will, of course, be played by Tom Welling and or Dean Cain <laughs> in reprisal of their classic interpretations. Um, so um, I'm going to say, because uh, it's my turn, and I'm Pete Fenzel, and I'm the host, and I'm going to say uh, the character of Neil from the movie, he's just not that into you. Because you know why he's just not that into you? Because he's Batman. And he- <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
he seems so distant. He's always got bags under his eyes. He leaves at strange hours. You know, he gets phone calls all the time on this big comical red phone that he has in his office. He tells it's me true not- that like every romantic relationship that Batman has ever had has broken down in exactly that way, right? It's like Alfred eventually has to take Vicky Vale, whoever, aside and be like, look, he's got other stuff on his mind, you know? Yeah. I thought you were talking about Ben Affleck for a second. It's like every <laughs> every time Wario dates a Hollywood starlet, it always ends up the same way. <laughs> I have commitments I have to attend to. You are not the only thing in Wario's life. <laughs> Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> I think Wario, Jennifer Love Hewitt would be a power couple, and I think they'd have a great amount of fun uh, – Riding go karts. So the world's end. <laughs> I actually want. We should maybe we should just talk for a hot second a little bit more about the Batfleck uh, controversy. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's it's like well, I mean, okay. So we we, we saw that the internet just kind of collectively lost its it's lost its mind. Yeah. At the result of this, right? So, I mean, can we like deconstruct this a little bit? Like, what exactly is going on here? Um, just to offer one idea up there, I think what we're seeing. Uh, is something similar to what Star Wars fans have felt, uh, you know, after the uh, dis- largest disappoint- disappointment of the prequel trilogy, um, and that itself is coming from this like new sense of ownership over pop culture property and sort of and the myths that uh, that well large corporations and you know uh, media interests have given us. Right? They've given us these powerful myths. We, by we, I mean the fans. We have taken on ownership of them, and now we are upset when. Uh, something you know the the actual corporate owners of these properties do things to them which uh, we feel like should not happen because of our supposed ownership in them. So those are my ideas. Right. I mean, and to, to extrapolate from that, uh, part of the issue is that we it has been outsourced to us to do much of the promotion of these properties via social media and word of mouth. Mm-hmm. In that, like the the marketers attempt to hook us on the properties, serve us up products that match things that we would want to talk about anyway, so that we can multiply the brand messaging, so so we can create a, a giant kind of maelstrom of promotion for these movies. And as such, I think it's reasonable that. We we feel as a commentariat, right? That you know, this is a broad we. That yeah. you know, there's no time in which all these people agree on anything. But the commentariat does feel more ownership over it. I think partially because they do, they are responsible for more of the messaging and the marketing around the movie. I mean, it's I probably not that no one was ever upset. But back when all the commercials used to be made by the ad agencies instead of by all the people posting on the Twitters, uh, you know, that voice wouldn't be as resonant and it wouldn't have found an audience. Um, as it as it has today. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about things in this business context, right? Talking about ownership and then outsourcing and things like that, right? We we should think about a vocabulary we're using here. And at the you know, ownership is a tricky thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But at the least, I think we can all agree that the fan base, uh, the commentary, or what have you, um, we are important stakeholders in this yeah. enterprise, which we call Batman or mm-hmm. Star Wars or any other of these you know pop culture you know new myths. That we have, and as stakeholders, uh, you know, we we hold a stake. We have, I don't know exactly what that entitled us to, in this particular context. I mean, should the should Warner Brothers have you know done a poll, you know, and been like have been completely transparent about their casting decision? Clearly not, right? Oh, no, that's no, no, no. not how the business works. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, at the other hand, like, well, what other alternatives do they have? And like, you know, do the normal business of, you know, doing uh, secret negotiations and then announcing uh, a, a casting decision. I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm not, at the end of the day, I'm not sure what there really is to be upset about. I mean, I mean, the joking that we were doing earlier was exactly that. It was joking. It was done in jest, right? Uh, you know, oh, yeah. It's not like we are, like, you know, uh, rending Jared our Dole, not only this. is not Batman, but he's not real. Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> Neither is Batman. We were joking the whole time, Mark. This is all a joke. No, no, no. <laughs> Pull the yeah. The scales fall from your eyes. Reality is an illusion. No, no. Um, I, I mean, I would, I would add that uh, you talk about entitled as if the sort of motivational uh, forces around these sorts of decisions and/or things that happen in the world are related to some sort of idea of justice or desert, right? When they're really much more of just a general discourse of power and influence, right? It's like. In in many cases, it's kind of depressing to think like, well, I mean, what's correct or right or appropriate doesn't really matter because what's going to happen is going to be what can happen, not necessarily what we want to have happen. But in this case, the stakes are so low, right? Like, I mean, I guess they're high. There's a lot of people's livelihoods that are caught up in it, so we shouldn't joke about it. Uh, well, we should because it's hilarious. But like, you know, <laughs> there are people who like will lose their livelihoods if Batman Superman the movie does poorly and may never recover, right? Like plunge into alcoholism and all that other stuff. There'll, if Ben Affleck fails to convince us that he is millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne turned uh, nighttime crime fighter, there will be children on the street, like if <laughs> because they will no longer be employed as graphic design artists or what have you. But um, but let's pretend that that's not what we're worried about, you know? Because actually, it's not. Let's just say that it's not what we're worried about, uh, and just say that like we don't. I think that that even ascribing the language of justice and rightness and desert to to this is not something we have to. It's just we just don't, don't have to do it because there's so little. That is at stake, and and you know what I mean. Like I we know. should, do we really feel a mandate to fight for what's right with regards to who should play Batman? I'm not uh, or sure we that. Uh, go go for it, Jordan. I'm not sure that the the word entitlement implies what you think it implies. There, I think that when you say it's it's more about power, I think that's uh, that's exactly what it is. That when people feel entitled to something, they feel that not that they deserve it, but that they are going to get it. And when they have that sense of entitlement wounded, it's because there was something that they expected to have and were counting on. Like they thought of it as theirs. They thought they could uh, they could like you know. Uh, borrow money off of it or whatever, and then it gets snatched away, and they, you know, fly into a fly into a tizzy. And the reason that we say entitled instead of some other kind of language is because we recognize on some level that uh, that it was just a power thing and not a right thing, right? Like when somebody has their civil rights violated, you don't be like, um, "Come on, that person like he was entitled to his vote in that election." Yeah. That's not the words that you use, right? You use entitlement to talk about – it's almost always like a sense of false entitlement really when you dig down at it enough um, that has more to do with de facto power. So what I think is going on here is that uh, as fans, we have come to expect that movies – you know, Batman movies will be good, I think, is one of the things we've come to expect, thanks to right. the, the Nolan yeah. regime. So, talking about expectations and power, uh, the, the, there's another important aspect going on here with, um, with, with the new internet age that we live in, right? Uh, fans have an expectation that they are able to engage in a dialogue with movie creators, and they have an expectation that they, uh, uh, and, or not, not just an unreasonable expectation, but a real expectation that they have power. 
right? I mean, it might be very limited power, and it's um, it, mm. you know, it's probably exaggerated in their minds. But you know, the fact that a, a Reddit post, for example, by some random person on the internet can go viral and reach millions of people, right? That's <laughs> some form of power. It is not the same kind of power that Warner Brothers has, but it is a kind of power, right? And then the dialogue that you have, you know, in the forums, and then like you know, tweeting back and forth with uh, with actors and, and directors on Twitter, right? It, it creates. Um, some some level of expectation that there is this dialogue, but not, uh, but you know that expectation is, is is should be a narrow one, and I think uh, becomes conflated in the, in the, this type of instance where uh, you know where fans feel like their wishes are violated. It's true that every now and then you will see a very prominent example of a you know a studio paying attention to the fan voice, right? And like uncanceling being a huge example. Say it again. Snakes on a plane, for example. Sure, yeah, or like Futurama coming back, right? Um, so I, I don't think in any of the stuff that I've seen about Affleck that there are people who are out there being like, we have the power to uncast Ben Affleck. You know, the studios are going to listen to us. Oh, but oh, I do think oh no, people have yeah. posted petitions on change.org, right? Like, they're asking the president to do it. Well, <laughs> but I don't think they seriously think that's going to happen. I do think that they seriously think, and I think that they're right, that um, – that that voice is not going unheard. Like there's someone whose job it is at the studio to keep tabs on this stuff and see how big of a deal that it was. I I feel like um, the petition saying let's fire Affleck will not work. Just like the petition saying let's close down Gitmo tomorrow will not work. But I think that the the one about Affleck will have greater effect on further decisions down the line than the one about Gitmo will. Like, I have less faith in the the angry guy on the internet's ability to dictate the government's policy than I have faith in that person's ability to dictate the, uh, you know, what the what the studios do, because the studios are still accountable to the, the people of America. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we should just ask Ben Affleck to legalize marijuana and end the drug wars. <laughs> I think he would do it. <laughs> I think he'd totally be up for it. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, politics is a really uncomfortable place, like the backseat of a Volkswagen. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, now that we've danced with the devil in the pale moonlight, shall we move on to the world's end? Um, I mean, no, I, mean I, I think the Affleck – I mean, I don't know. I'm pro-Affleck. I, I'm always pro-Affleck. I think Affleck is awesome. Uh, I'm a fan, so uh, I'm not going to – like, if I can just get on my, my fan horse for a minute, I, I really admire what Ben Affleck has done with his later career. I think he's a talented guy. It makes no sense to me to have him in a Zack Snyder movie, A, or as Batman, B. Like, it seems like two really questionable choices um, for his agent to, like, sign off on attaching yeah. to. Yeah. But, uh, but, however, I will say this. I would not have thought that, like, Kevin Costner would be really awesome in a Superman movie directed by Zack Snyder and, like... Like, it worked, right? Yeah. So maybe maybe we will be surprised. Do you think Ben Affleck is going to be? Oh no, you know maybe I shouldn't spoil Man of Steel in this in the in the uh, in the Shaun of the Dead in the uh, World's End in the Hot Fuzz podcast. Uh, so <laughs> like, do you think the same things will happen to Ben Affleck in the Batman movie that happened to Kevin Costner in the Superman movie? Let's just leave that conversation for the comments with nice big spoilers on top of it. Nice. Uh, yeah, definitely. Oh, and by the way, this is blanket spoilers for the world's end. We're going to be talking about Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Well, and Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I feel like it is. You know, it's been 
discussed as a trilogy. We can talk about the relative merits of framing it as such. Um, I mean, Mark, Jordan, I know, Mark, you've seen all three movies, even so much as you saw Hot Fuzz this weekend to prepare to see World's End. Yeah, I saw Hot Fuzz this weekend. I've seen Shaun of the Dead many times, but last time was probably at least like three years ago. Right, or right, so. right. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about it as a trilogy, I mean, there's, uh, you know, a lot of them have the same sort of monomyth sort of thing going on. And we'll definitely talk about that later, right? Where the Simon Pegg character uh, goes through a transformation of sorts and sort of rises to the occasion uh, and becomes a hero. Uh, right. But in very different ways in all three of them. Sort of. Want to point out. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. Have you seen all three of them too, Jordan? I have. I've seen. I've seen them many times, cool. except for the World's I, End. I saw that I, once. I probably, have used Hot Fuzz, so I, the, I lean on you guys for that. Yeah, one. The, probably the strongest theme that runs through all three of them. Maybe we can use this as our jumping-off point for talking about the World's End. Is uh, the idea of sort of the the the, the people, the, the regular common folk, being subverted, uh, being turned into um, or controlled by this very conforming force, which prevents them from self-actualization, from really expressing themselves, right? So in Shaun of the Dead, people become zombies. In Hot Fuzz, uh, people are sort of deluded by this false sense of security, and, well, and they're also uh, you know, killed, right? There's, they're, just, they're living a lie in the same way that sort of in, in Shaun of the Dead, people are living a lie. And then in The World's End, right, again, people are, are living a lie in that they are being turned into robots. Uh, <laughs> that's a very, like, really simple way of describing it, so I want to turn it over to the rest of the panel to, uh, to start the flesh this out yeah i mean jordan how would you frame the, the sort of the trilogy uh what's the name of the what do they call what kind of what do they call the this trilogy cornetto trilogy cornetto and why is it called that because of the uh brand of ice cream that comes up as a recurring sight gag oh. in the movies and i think that's <laughs> it right i mean there's not I, when i first heard that i act maybe like uh you know a few months ago when when uh, the world's end uh, publicity really started kicking high gear I wasn't aware of it, and I thought Cornetto trilogy. That sounds like something really kind of epic, you know. It's like it has this a bit of a, a Latin flavor to it, and uh, you know, I, I thought there was just something much more to it than just ice cream. I think it's just ice cream. Yeah, it's uh, the official story of it is that um, Edgar Wright in a uh, in an interview, I think, I don't know if it was after Hot Fuzz or after Shaun of the Dead, uh, but they were asking him about like whether he was going to do another another movie and he like just to be funny uh said that they were inspired by the great filmmaker Christoph Kieslowski uh as these this three colors trilogy red white and blue and they're like thematically related but don't have uh, direct plot ties and they're art house films and they're great you know everyone go watch those we'll put them in the show notes uh, but anyway, <laughs> the whole thing just just like in GIF form. We're just going to put all of Blue Blanc and Rouge into like animated GIFs in the show notes. Uh, Pete and I will act it out in the common thread. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, he was like, "So we're going to have the three flavors Cornetto trilogy," uh, and that was that was the the whole of it. You know, they just decided to make that thing true. Nice, nice. It is sort of telling because I'm I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, which so it's it you know it's real because it has a Wikipedia page, <laughs> and it is it is so ironic. So is this ironic, uh, coincidental, or strangely apropos that Cornetto was very pleased with the name check <laughs> that like the Cornetto Corporation approves of the use of its brand in the naming of the trilogy about ordinary people being conformed by institutions and and such. <laughs> 
Oh, man. So, yeah, so, so, okay, so we're in the trilogy. We're hitting up on the third one. What's your guys' initial take? Like, what's the, what's your first, uh, what are your first thoughts about World's End? What did you, did you like? I mean, I know we hesitate to talk too much about whether it's good or bad because it's not all that interesting sometimes, but, like, did you like it? Loved it. I loved it, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Head and shoulders above the, the, the pack of other summer, summer movies. And, and to be clear, like putting this in the same heap as like Promethea, not Promethea, the, the, the Pacific Rim and uh, Iron Man three and Man of Steel and things like that is not fair because this movie had about a tenth of the budget and right yeah, and like yeah. this this was the opening weekend for it and it came out about maybe half of the uh, screens that a, a big tentpole will actually come out on. Yeah. That being they, said, like still way better than all of that. They could have gone to one hundred and twenty bars in the golden ten. They could have done a golden marathon of twenty six point two miles, which would have been uh, what like two hundred. 150, 60 some odd bars and still spent less money. <laughs> <laughs> of course, all they have to do is change the sign of the front, right? Because the whole thing on right. the inside is the same every time. Oh, man. So, yeah, but I mean, I, thought, yeah, I, definitely, I definitely thought this rested the crown of best uh, summer movie away from the squabbling uh, films that were bickering over it, or at least were being bickered over it, or at least on their behalfs or whatnot. This is awesome. It's really, really jazzed by it. Um, yeah, I, I guess, and Mark, you say it's, it's, where, where does it fall in the Cornetto trilogy for you guys? That's an interesting all, all question. All three of them are very different. I will say that the other, uh, you know, a unifying theme, as I mentioned earlier, was this, uh, you know, the sense of conformity, uh, and, and people living a lie. Um, another thing which sort of ties the Cornetto trilogy together, but kind of is broken in this last one, is, uh, the self-awareness, or at least the pop culture awareness, and, you know, it's, it's place in, in genre movies, right? Mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead being a, a zombie movie, which uh, has a lot of pop culture references inside of it. If you remember the record throwing scene, um, that being a great one. Uh, Hot Fuzz being a, a a parody slash homage to the uh, you know Buddy Cop movie with a lot of references to Buddy Cop movies in them, uh, both implicit and highly explicit. Um, but this one, I think, is a little bit different. I mean, it, it is like it, it is in, on one level very aware of its uh, of its place as a genre, as a genre movie. Um, but does not call out to other sort of, you know, like alien invasion or robot movies in the same way that Hot Fuzz and, uh, and Shaun of the Dead called out to other uh, similar movies uh, in I mean, genre, it, explicitly it, in-universe. It does. It's just that um, the call-outs that I noticed, at least, or, I mean, so the one that I'm thinking of is that howl that they make at one point, that the, that the Phobots make when they're uh, glowing blue and trying to alert the other Phobots that, uh, <laughs> that there are real people around, is lifted like directly out of the, uh, the Donald Sutherland version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But it's not really played as a joke because those scenes aren't really played as jokes, right? It's like in the, the action chase part of it. So... Um, I don't know. Yeah, that, yeah, it feels different. You're right, yeah. Mark. It's, I mean, I, just basing it off of Shaun of the Dead, I would say that Shaun of the Dead is a zombie parody movie that's also a movie about like friendship and identity and, and kind of coming into yourself. It's also sort of a coming of age kind of movie. Whereas this is much more like a friendship coming of age movie that also happens to have an alien robot invasion body snatchers movie kind of inside of it. Right. Well, I, mean, I guess because like it's not even in the first. I mean, that's interesting. Thinking about other body snatchers movies, they'd often wait a long time before introducing the aliens. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of creepy signs that something might be wrong. But this movie, I felt like this movie waited a long time before introducing any supernatural elements at all. Right. Like well, it's, the ghost ship movement. The ghost ship moment came quite late. In yeah. Oh, right? definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 
Um, Actually, like, I mean, depending upon what you think the ghost ship moment is, right? Because the fact that it's called The World's End, you don't find out that the world is actually going to end until, like, three minutes before the thing stops. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he just says, like, bleep it, when he just chili peppers it, and it just, like, ends (laughs) (laughs) Bill Nye, by the way, is the voice of the network. I'm not sure if everyone caught that. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. God bless oh. him. God bless Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say, like, one of the reasons, I mean, this sort of touches on why I love the movies so much, and I talked a little bit about this in our forum thread about the best summer movies, in that when you're dealing with elevating a genre of piece past the point of consumability to the point where you admire it and like it, for me, it's about turning the things that the genre makes you do from disadvantages, not just into things that you do well and enjoy and are advantages, but which inform and empower your storytelling tools for the larger story that you're talking about. And I, and when we did our Iron Man 3 podcast, I talked a lot about trauma and relationships and how I felt like the, the metal suit and trying to get inside the metal suit and the sort of healing and the healing technology was all part of, of feeding this story about relationships and trauma. And in that way, like I really liked Iron Man 3 because yeah. I felt like it had a reason to be a superhero movie. It had a reason to be an Iron Man movie. It had a reason to be this Iron Man movie. Right? Now, World's End, I feel like, really, really strongly exemplifies this, in that it has every reason to be like a Body Snatchers robot movie. Right? Like, um, although, I guess the, the two stories don't quite dovetail all that nicely at the end. Like, there isn't a... I didn't feel like there was a really a resolution moment where... Um, uh, is it Andy? Andy and, uh, Andy and Gary's uh, conflict, like their sort of their relationship coming full circle, and the dealing with the alien network or the robot network or whatever, like those those things never quite come together. But I feel like they came close enough, uh, and they informed each other, and they reinforced each other, and strengthened each other. But like, I mean, it was so funny because the relationships were so solid, right? And the and the timing was so good. But also, mm-hmm. and that was another big thing. But I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is is qualities like this that made the movie admirable for you? Is there something else you liked about it? Hey, well, why did you think it was so great? Uh, Kung Fu battling Nick Frost is <laughs> worth, a, <laughs> worth a lot of points. <laughs> it's interesting. So I, I really, really liked it a lot. I would say, uh, I, saw, I saw it with my wife, and we were both kind of talking about this on the way home, that uh, although we enjoyed the heck out of it and would gladly go see it again, um, for both of us, it didn't quite live up to the other two entries in the trilogy, just in the sense of like there has to be a third place. And what it was for both of us is that uh, the Gary King character, Simon Pegg's character here, um, is not really a likable guy, right? Like, he, it's not just that he's sort of a lovable screw up, he's an unlovable screw up. Right. And therefore, he's sort of getting his ducks in the row at the end. Um, and finding a life for himself didn't quite work as a satisfying ending for us um, in quite the same way that, like, Sean getting back together with his ex-girlfriend, was it Liz, right, I think? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, that was at the end of Shaun of the Dead. We're like, oh, thank goodness. You know, they're going to be all right, those two crazy kids. (laughs) Whereas, uh, really, like... The point at the end of this when you realize that uh, the Gary's been trying to off himself, right? And he really does not work in the modern world, in like the adult world. That then he sort of like finds a regressed childhood ending for himself in the like the destruction of the world. 
I guess I'm glad that he's doing okay, but I wasn't rooting for that character quite enough for it to make the whole movie like land nicely for me. I don't yeah, know. I hear you on that, but on one level, like I have to assume that uh, this is very intentional on Edgar Wright's part, and maybe maybe it was just sort of like okay, we've sort of done the uh, you know the, the the typical character arc where you know the character gets everything together uh, at the end, and we want to do something you know very different for it in this one because literally the world has ended, the world has totally changed in this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a very similar disagreement earlier online with people I was talking about with on this movie. Like I was talking online forums about the movie and it does seem pretty, pretty split between people who really like Gary King and people who don't like him at all. And I think that there's really, some of it might just be not accounting. Like there's no accounting for taste, I suppose. Um, I don't know whether it. I would. It'd be interesting to see whether it correlates with with married people and single people, or with age. You know, like whether being sort of like an, an ornery single, thir- like thirty three year old, happy birthday to me a couple weeks ago, uh, <laughs> makes you like more likely to sympathize with Carrie King and sort of like not even not only want him to win, like not really even so much want him to win as much as to like want him to sort of get through it, like get through <laughs> the end of this movie in some way. Like I definitely feel like the ending is not. Like, like, he could have been doing anything, as far as I'm concerned, at the end of that movie. The thing that they had him do didn't feel, being the sort of, like, Van Helsing robot leader guy or whatever with that hat going on, like, being the sort of wandering Mad Max kind of figure, I didn't necessarily feel like that was an especially suitable thing for him to be doing at the end of the movie. But I was really happy that he was doing something at the end of the movie, right? That he had, like, that, that and it's, the movie is, if it's about him at all, and it is, I mean, it's his, his journey to an extent, um... I guess it's more about freeing him up for the possibility of doing whatever comes next. Uh, and sure. I mean, a lot of other movies would have just ended there and being like, hey, we're in the rock face now, Gary. You can go out there and do whatever you want, and you're going to. But instead, they just mm. decided to be like, I'm going to be a vigilante robot leader guy. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like, and it's like, okay, that's arbitrary. Let's end the movie. Like, <laughs> like, it, would uh, have been, it would have been a very different and I think much more depressing movie if he had had to like blow himself up along with the big alien spaceship, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Randy Quaid himself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in some ways it would have been a sensical character arc, but it would have made the movie not about what the movie was about, which is kind of about making room for the Gary Kings of the world in society. Right. The, the other members of the Five Musketeers, the other four Musketeers, they are really challenged by their friendship, their relationship with Gary. And we as an audience are meant to be challenged in a similar way with Gary, right? Yeah, he's not very likable, and at the end, he, he he doesn't sort of you know either elevate himself to this you know much more uh, together state, or he doesn't just complete off himself and complete sacrifice. He just had to live with him as this really imperfect person, but you know someone who's sort of finding his way in the world, which which he clearly wasn't doing earlier, but not in a way that we typically think of ourselves as finding our way in the world. Yeah. I feel like one one thing they could have tied up better if we're talking about Gary's arc and kind of making Gary's arc something we could root for more. I felt like it was there was something wrong about the fact that he never got to drink the twelfth beer. Um, like, like, well, what, that, that was the, supposed to be symbolic of him sobering up, one way, right? I suppose, yeah. Like, he was an alcoholic. I mean, the word, the A word, is never mentioned in this movie, right? Um, but that is clear what is going on, right? Right, right. I mean, alcoholic plus, right? He's a varsity alcoholic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and this movie, this movie tries to have it both ways with alcoholism, yeah, it, it, which is a, a tricky thing. But I feel like. It's one that I don't begrudge this movie because I think our, 
culture and society also tries to have it both ways with alcoholism uh, in that it's like and I mean they, they do comment on it I feel like it's a pretty robust and mature take on a, a contradiction and sort of hypocritical series of standards where it's like if you're an alcoholic you really shouldn't been drinking like why are you doing this to yourself and the people around you you're just causing damage like do and also do what you need to do get help there's help for you it's available uh, versus like Go out and have a drink. We're just a bunch of guys who are trying to get loaded and have a good time, and that being an admirable thing to be willing to do. The idea that time enjoyed is not time wasted, and rituals of eating and drinking are really important to people, and our sort of common life and zeitgeist centers around the things that we care about, drinking, good times, good friends. It's not just a marketing slogan. It predates all these companies that marketed beer. People drink this stuff, and they, they have fun together. And then, of course, there's the courage of the teetotaler, which is, I feel like, the most honest part of that whole discussion and or this most fearless part of this discussion in this movie where he gives the speech about how gutsy it is to order a water in a, in a room full of alcoholics uh, as an alcoholic a room full of heavy drinkers but yeah no it definitely tries to play you know play one side play the other side where it's like yeah simon simon's peg's character is an alcoholic and needs to stop being an alcoholic but at the same time it's really important to his character that he drinks the beer in every bar that they go to. And I felt as an audience member that I was really rooting for that to happen too because yeah. the beers were important. And I mean mm. this is – I guess I'll introduce one of the big topics now that we're a ways into the podcast that I really wanted to talk about, which is the relationship with this movie with the monomyth and with Joseph Campbell's hero journey and all that stuff, right? Um, which we alluded <laughs> Drink, to a little bit. by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Drink because we're talking about it. Uh, and, and I mean the obvious framing of it is there are 12 bars in the world's end and they are all named sort of after things that happen in the story, right? And uh, you know Edgar Wright talked about this. I read about it on his Wikipedia page how he wrote – he originally wrote this when he was younger and he wrote it about the teenagers, uh, right. Uh, it was just a, a, st- a thing he wrote about the teenagers and their pub crawl, which is why some of it is kind of dated. Like the idea that the bars are becoming homogenous is kind of dated because they are homogenous at this point. Right? Like, <laughs> this, is like, this is like a You've Got Mail era story where it's like, oh, the big bookstores are moving in. Like, nope. <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> the internet is becoming a thing. <laughs> exactly. What? The internet? But, they, but they're also kind of portentous and a bunch of the different names of the bars match up with, with – Stages in the Hero's Journey, which is, of course, really influential in the writing of action movies. And in this case, I wanted to talk, and the, the bridge I want to make is supernatural aid, right? Like, what's like when you have the call to adventure happens, right? Like, which is the big first step of the Hero's Journey, where it's like, hey, we should all do this thing, right? And then there's the refusal of the call to adventure when people are like, I have a wife and kids, and nobody wants to be with you, Gary, because you're an alcoholic, and this is all going to be a mess. But then there's like a supernatural aid that comes and helps to usher the hero on his quest. And I really think that in this movie, the part of uh, the part of the lightsaber is played by beer, right? Like, <laughs> uh, I think you're where, totally right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, we're like the supernatural aid is like the pint of beer that Simon has at every pub that compels him to go forward, right? Like, um, also the shots that Andy takes, right? Yeah, when, exactly. After he decides to break his teetotal or teetotal eighteen. Yeah, no, totally, definitely. It's uh, and, and I think in that case, the movie in its criticisms of, of alcoholism doesn't can't go far, so far as to say that people shouldn't drink because drinking is like kind of the most important. You know, guide that they have to kick off the story in the first place is the thing that the friends had in common. They don't seem to have anything else in common anymore, but they still all want to go to the pub. I guess Andy doesn't, but eventually he comes around to it. Well, right? they and they have their past in common, which is yeah, quite true. important, I think. But yeah, that like uh, the the role of alcohol as a social lubricant is portrayed, I think, 
very accurately in this movie, much, much more so than in a lot of movies that are kind of pro-drinking. Like, you see a lot of movies where, uh, like, a character has one drink and suddenly becomes, like, impossibly charming and gregarious, um, which is not really how it works. Spoiler yeah. alert for our yeah. underage audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drink but, Don't drink and drive. Don't drink if you're under 21 and, uh, you know... None of the drinking habits, uh, you know, on, on display in this movie are really good ideas. But it does, like, it, it, it bridges that gap, right? If you have someone who, like, you ought to be friends with, you have every reason to want to sit down and talk to them, and you find yourself sort of sitting there being like, eh, so what? Having a couple of pints will get you there. And that was on display in this movie, you know. Really nicely. I mean, the Cornetto people were in, uh, fans of the shout out. I'm sure that the beer industry is uh, cackling and, and rubbing their hands after uh, after this movie's release. And, and Foster's in particular, right, is really heavily featured. Even though even though the beer is supposedly, according to the story, has all been replaced, right? Like, is it been re- well? That's what Crown and Royal is that an actual beer that they're that they're serving, or is it like a robot anti beer? I'm not as much of a beer uh, beer drinker as as I might be, despite living in in Boston, which is a big craft beer. T- town um, but they did have the fosters tap on display yeah, everywhere right exactly like the robots still need the product placement because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well they invented the internet right like yeah. <laughs> they're so, gonna be pretty well so so to jump through some of the rest of the hero's journey right so so here let me let me read through the names of the pubs in, in the world's end all 12 of them real fast we got the first post the old familiar the famous cock the cross hands the good companions the trusty servant the two-headed dog the mermaid the Beehive, the King's Head, the Hole in the Wall, and the World's End. And those are the 12 pubs. And then the 17 phases in the hero's journey. Should I even bother? All right. Yeah, Cold Adventure, Refuse the Call, Supernatural Aid, Crossing the First Threshold. Okay, I'll stop there. The, one of the things that, that leads me into this idea that you know, young Edgar Wright was, was also looking at Joseph Campbell when he's doing this is that the bar where they first find out about the robots is called the Cross Hands. And the step in the hero's journey, where the hero's journey has irrevocably de- begun, is crossing the first threshold. So, like, crossing and crossing is kind of corresponds mm. between the name of the bar and, and the sort of official name of the step, right? Um, so that, that was sort of a, a key into it for me. Um, yeah, and then the belly of the whale, the road of trials, the meeting with the goddess and temptation. And we saw those things mm. at the mermaid, right? Like, uh, the trials is the two headed dog, you know, and like, uh, the, and the trials has other names too, but it's like the good companions and the trusty servant. That's all, that's all up in there. Uh, and then you have like atonement with the father, which happens when they meet up with Guy, uh, the ultimate boon. I mean, I'm, I'm going, any of you guys want to chip in on this, uh, as I'm sort of racing through this stuff? Or should I finish up the list? Well, yeah, uh, go on. All right, all right. I don't, I don't want to, uh, refusal of return. So the ultimate boon, I felt like the ultimate boon was the 12th pint sitting on the table waiting for him to drink it, uh, which then, the, the, and the, or the world's end, like the 12th bar on the trip is the ultimate boon, and that's what kind of brings them down. Then there's the refusal to return where they're like, no, you know, and that's when they have their big fight. Right when when Andy and Gary have their big fight about their relationship and about their future and about his desire to kill himself, where it's like we can't go back to the regular world, uh, and then you know either there's a magical flight or a rescue from without, which sort of ha- both of those happen when they plunge down into the uh, 
into the sort of robot abyss, and then they they cross the return threshold as they're fleeing um, and become the master of two worlds with the freedom to live, which is what he does when he becomes Mad Max, right? So that's like the hero's journey of Gary King's character. It is interesting. uh, One of the sort of the classic things that the hero's journey is meant to be about is uh, that the hero is attempting to become immortal and, uh, and fails in that, right? That like uh, I mean at least that's how it works in Gilgamesh, which is the one yeah. that I always tend to map it onto most. Yeah. Uh, is like he gets the plant that will let him live forever, and then it gets eaten by a rodent of some kind, maybe a snake. I think a snake. In any case, he doesn't get to have it, and he has to just sort of live on through his accomplishments and his children and so on. So you have that same sort of thing, right? That they are offered immortality by the network, and their young selves like marched out to greet them, and you know you can you can live forever, be forever young, and. And uh, rather than not being worthy of it, which is how it sort of works out for Gilgamesh because he falls asleep, or uh, being denied it some other way, uh, or just receiving it, which is a way that it can sometimes work out, in this case, the, uh, the hero rejects it, right? His, yeah. his reaction to immortality is, nah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And which is, I mean, that's sort of, I, Luke Skywalker kind of does that too, I guess, right? When he like tosses aside the lightsaber and says he's not going to join the Emperor and Darth Vader. It's just that a similar sort of situation. Um, I'm trying to think of like other, like uh, Joseph Campbell, of course, I always think about it in terms of Star Wars because that's how it was first introduced to me in school, <laughs> was in the context of Star Wars. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he says no, and he, tear, you know, he, he tears the head off of his younger self, his robot self, right? Like his, we're not robot, flowbot, frobot. I never understood what they were talking about with those fake names for the other kinds of things. <laughs> well, do but, you know yeah. what the word robot means? Oh, why don't you tell me? <laughs> you, you cannot watch this movie and come out with any doubt as to what the meaning of the word robot is or its etymology yeah. <laughs> or anything I, else. You know, I, I really appreciated those little speeches um, because um, they, they just made wonder, such wonderful use out of the phrase, it's not about this, it's about this, which is just such a – that I think that, that – phrase more than anything else it sums up so many of the social political professional personal discursive difficulties of the present day where we are so many of us are so aware of the meta conversation that's happening and there is such a struggle to reframe what we're talking about in different contexts right you know like it's not about the razor it's about the quality of the shave you know like it's like (laughs) it's not about the fact that the razor costs four dollars it's about what it feels like on your wife's fingertips right like it's you know it's no it's about the fact that the razor costs four dollars like what about my framing doesn't my framing matter and I think it was really interesting that the Does, biggest. To give another example of that, just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, like you're saying, like it's not about infringing on civil liberties; it's about keep preventing terrorist attacks. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, like this, this isn't about rights and freedoms. Like this is about security and safety. <laughs> like it's like, um, and, and it's like if you. I mean, that sounds absurd when you say it, but if you if you find more subtle ways of steering the conversation, then then totally. So, and and sort like what you're complaining about is like these ways of like distorting facts and like twisting logic right and preventing people uh, from I, seeing I, what's I actually would, no, i would not even go as far to say that it's twi- just twisting logic and distorting facts no i'm talking about narrative reframing changing the thing that you're focusing on you don't have to twist logic because it is about security and it is about your wife's fingertips touching your face right it's not <laughs> i'm not distorting facts by saying that i shave to have a smooth face right it's just about how i frame what's happening mm-hmm. with the words that i choose 
uh, right? Which is you know more important than the facts that I have, except for like the metrics that I have over who's responding to what words, right? Like that's why we focus group these things to death because we want the argument that works because uh, there's so many different ways of being right, right? That, like to the point where it almost becomes meaningless. I can be right in an infinite number of ways, but what's the way that's right that makes the thing happen that I want to have happen? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's the way of being right that will make Anheuser-Busch you know, that much more money? Exactly. Exactly. And no, I, thought- no, I mean, I, I think that in a way, though, they're being quite sincere about the, uh, the they aren't robots thing. And, yeah. uh, and, and saying like, well, robot, right, means, means slave. Typically, when we think of somebody being a robot, we mean that someone else is telling them what to do. Right. And they reject that in favor of the label blank. And I think there is something, something there. Right, that uh, the the horror that Edgar Wright et al. are trying to warn us about is not that there are people out there who want to enslave us. It's that we might function most smoothly in this in this society in this economy. We, we might function most easily with the least amount of friction if we have no traits. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the whole speech that, uh, that that Gary gives, and Gary and Andy give at the end, right? About how yeah. humanity is just like, awful and terrible in so many different ways, but they are awful and terrible out of their own choice, and yeah. like that is their right to make those choices. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, the, I, one of the big things he says at the end is, you know, "Who are you to tell us what to do?" And I really feel like that's a. I mean, that's I've, I've been watching a lot of uh, television about Renaissance era aristocracy recently, like the Tudors and stuff. And, 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 hang on, hang on. I will not allow you. It's not about that. It's about this. I will I not know. allow you to say that the Tudors is about Renaissance era aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It's about other things that yeah. we will save for the R-rated podcast. Right. But, but I, I will say that that one of the things that's made me really uh, acutely aware of is, uh, and of course something you know we know about these things, but seeing it narrativized is just like. And I'm also watching this this Czech this like Czech Italian ripoff Borgia series that I've joked about because <laughs> I thought I was watching the Jeremy Irons Borgia, but I ended up watching this like European made series called uh, Borgia, starring like the guy who played Caesar in Fallout New Vegas, who's also in The Wire, and and like the how about them apples guy from Good Will Hunting is in it too. <laughs> It's like so is Samuel, so is Samuel uh, uh, Tarly from from uh, Game of Thrones. Um, so it's it's quite a ramshackle bunch, um, but but it's just like the the frame of reference of the of the aristocracy in deciding how to make decisions versus like the frame of reference of you know like working class or like the the, the regular people right like as we would think of them right the zeitgeist in terms of making decisions. And then thinking about it in terms of technocracy today and the idea that, um, well, like you, the person who is the smartest should make the decisions, right? Like the person – and it's like, well, if the person who's the smartest is trying to figure out how to get the three families of Rome, right, or like you know, to, to cooperate rather than kill each other or how to get his family in Rome you know, to not be killed by the other families in Rome, if that's what the smartest person is doing, then it's not necessarily in everyone's interest for the smartest person to be making the decisions. It's, it's like um, – you know, where's you know the power to make decisions doesn't necessarily correlate with the person who knows best. Um, and, and I mean, this is like kind of obvious thing to say about history, but I mean, that's sort of about this movie is that like the aliens are saying, you know, you should make you should become more like us because the way that we do it is better. And then and then the, you know the answer is like, well, that that doesn't matter, right? Like it doesn't matter that it's better. Um, yes, the idea of individuality is put forward as as an idea of like. 
um, yeah, you know, well, we have traits and distinctiveness. I have scars that prove who I am. Like I'm a real person because the things that I've done in my life affect me, and that all colors it. But the bottom line is also like I – it doesn't matter that you're the smartest because I am here as an agent and I refuse to let my agency be run over by you regardless of whether you're smarter, regardless of whether I'm more distinct. It's just, it's just not going to happen because of a kind of a dialectical opposition or a power struggle, right? And then, and then ultimately it's ironic because it's the insistence of the alcoholic to refuse help, right? That like, <laughs> yeah, right. It's just like you can't fix me. Right, and he's saying that to everybody in his life who's told him to get a job or to quit drinking or to get a CD player or a DVD player or like an iPod or like Spotify or any number of the other generations of playing music or film that he skipped. Um, or gosh, video. But yeah, it's that like it's it's you know you you can't it, it's I talked also a little bit in the old article about how like the Black Widow from the Avengers was like a superhero for sexual assault victims in the sense that it turned being a sexual assault being a sexual assault victim into a superpower. Like Gary, like his power is that he's a he's a high function alcoholic, if that, <laughs> right. and like that's yeah. the thing that the aliens can't beat. Right. It's um. Gosh. And also, and that in, in sort of in general, even without the alcoholism, he lives in the past, right? Like he's still driving the same car from high school. He still has the same mixtape in it, right? And uh, and when we look at someone like that, right? Like if you went back to your high school reunion and you met someone who was like him, you would think like, oh my god, what went wrong there, right? Like why did they not change at all? And that uh, that resistance to change, that you know, that sort of fixed grain of history is. Is the undigestible matter that causes the planet not to be taken over by robots, which is an interesting an interesting claim to make. Yeah. I mean, when someone is saying it's not about this, it's about this, what they're really saying is it's not about your interests, it's about my interests. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and, but the thing is you, you, you can use that phrase as such a powerful tool for deflecting criticism, and it takes somebody super stubborn and super rooted in the past and like super averse to, to anything changing to, to sort of prevent that kind of narrative reframing from defining the way that everybody lives. Interesting, because that's, um, oh, who is it that says that that's like the definition of conservatism is to stand athwart the, the rushing stream of history and say no, right? Uh, I, that I think a- that that's Captain America in the Civil <laughs> <laughs> You plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth, right? That's the big Captain America speech from... <laughs> but no, I'm sure there's a conservative intellectual who said it before Captain America said it. In a way, yeah. in a way, isn't William F. Buckley Captain America? In a way. <laughs> Are you saying in, William F. Buckley is frozen beneath the Arctic ice shelf? <laughs> in all ways. <laughs> wait, 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 to bring this back to, to, the, to the salient points of this conversation, are we saying that this movie is in a, a strange way... Uh, a celebration of nostalgia? In some ways. That sounds like a leading question, Mark. What's your agenda on this? I I, I, I just remember reading and passing a review and saying that this movie was in in some ways a scathing indictment of nostalgia. Mm. Um, And uh, sort of having that feeling inside of me as I left the movie theater. Um, But now that you've sort of, you know, described in the way you have i'm i'm, I'm rethinking things here I'm, I'm i'm really i'm questioning my entire existence in the last 20 years of my life is what i'm saying <laughs> 
we're at a breakthrough. Uh, well, nostalgia is nonsense. Well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's not nostalgia isn't nonsense, but it, it's really hard. It's it's all of a sudden it's hard for me to have this conversation without talking about Mad Men because this is basically like what Mad Men is about, uh, and I don't want to spoil what happens in Mad Men for people who don't watch Mad Men. But like to reach way back into the beginning of Mad Men, which I feel like I can I can spoil comfortably. You know, Don Draper gives this awesome ad pitch. It might even be in the first episode for the uh, the carousel. Uh, like picture slide projector, right? Where he talks and he, he sort of conjures this idea of nostalgia and this sort of sweetness uh, associated with memory and with the things that you've lost and you ache for, right? And it's and and it's it's really compelling and it's total nonsense, right? Like it's like it. I mean, not nonsense. I want to say BS, but I don't want it to get chili peppers, right? Like he's he's just like. But of course, we're talking about there like the old Eudora email program and Chili Peppers being marked on emails that had curse words in it. So I guess we should gloss that like every like six months or so for people who are new <laughs> listeners. But yes, when we say Chili Peppers, we mean curse words that we don't try, try not to put in the podcast. But yeah, and then like and then later on, there are other ad pitches that are more honest about the way that people actually feel about the past. And they're they're much darker and they're much more scathing and they reveal a lot more pain, right? And, and I mean yeah. that's not spoiling anything. Saying that that eventually happens in Mad Men, and we'll step away from Mad Men now and we can talk about World's right. End. Right. Okay. So in the, uh, the, the 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 big climax of the end, where the network is sort of describing the network's plot, right? There's this phrase used in there, and it's, I think it's key to this conversation: selective memory, right? Yeah. The the blanks, sort of the replicant robot things. Um, are, are are given memories, but they are selective. Am I remembering this correctly? Is my memory? Yeah, selective? I know that's absolutely right. right. Um, and, and that's the the perfect young versions of themselves are the idealized versions of themselves rather than the actual versions of themselves. Right. So that is the movie's criticism of nostalgia. Right. Is having the selective memory of the past of only trying to remember the good, mm-hmm. the good parts of it, and not facing up to the the, the reality of it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't it's know. Been- like. Wanting your Star Trek six without your Star Trek five, basically, <laughs> and that's actually, in a way, uh, that's where the the two through lines of the movie do intersect thematically, right? Which is that um, the relationship between Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, right? Or I mean, their characters um, can't be one that doesn't have warts, right? Like it needs to get to the point where you find out what it was that he did that he like left the guy to get arrested and potentially bleed out on the pavement um and that is who gary king is he's a guy who will do that and if you're going to root for the character you need to root for him knowing that that is the character that he is and he doesn't really change particularly right Mm -hmm. like you just have to accept him as this deeply deeply flawed human um if you want there to be something that is called human that you care about yeah, and I think this ties it back into the kind of old-school heroic narratives that this movie is reaching for and connecting with. Even though Edgar Wright did say he based the names of the pubs off of the idea of tarot cards, uh, just to get slip that in there as like a legitimate citation, I do think that it matches up with these sort of classical hero stories a lot. That like we don't really like. Yes, there's a lot of dark things that happen in like the Odyssey, right? Like like a lot of things that Odysseus does, he probably shouldn't be proud of. And as a high school or middle school student, more likely, you might be a little bit confounded by the the fact that 
expect to root for this person because we've come to associate being heroic with being kind of blemishless, being admirable, being likable, right? Um, but there's an idea of heroism which is different from being likable, which just sort of involves having this force of personality and will and ability, capability, uh, this ability to compel events forward um, through, through your, your presence in the story. Um, I did want to quickly can make a connection because we talked a lot about the different the different sort of references in the hero's journey. I was very I was sort of smugly proud of my little connection. Can I can I indulge with the uh, the Virgil? Will you guys be I, mad I, at me if I don't? I highly doubt we can stop you. No <laughs> That's true. What the question is asked on this podcast? Can I indulge in some Virgil? Like really? <laughs> what answer do you expect? So so we talked about the names of the bars and how they correspond to stages in the hero's journey. They also seem somewhat mythological. The bar name that really made me all giddy was the Beehive, right? And the, the Beehive is the bar where Pierce Brosnan shows up and tries to convince Simon Pegg and and everybody else that the robot. The, the, the blank way of doing things is the best way of doing things. And you can, as sort of background for this, you can take this whole conversation we've been having about pain and memory and individuality versus the collective and like narrative control, frames of reference, independence, all this stuff, and, and bind it up in, in Virgil's Aeneid a little bit in the way that uh, the, the Trojan who becomes a Roman founder, Aeneas, uh, first views the city of Carthage. There's a famous epic simile in the Aeneid uh, where the people of Carthage are compared to bees. Uh, and I'll, I'll read it quickly. Uh, just, and this is, a, this is a translation by A.S. Klein. I was looking for the Fitzgerald online but couldn't find it, and the book is in a box. So I'll, I'll post that as show notes when I, when I figure it out. But just as bees in early summer carry out their tasks among the flowery fields in the sun where they lead out the adolescent young of their race or cram the cells with liquid honey and swell them with sweet nectar or receive the income burdens or forming lines drive the lazy herd of drones from their hives the work glows and the fragrant honey's sweet with thyme uh, time oh fortunate those whose walls already rise Aeneas cries and admires the summits of the city and he enters among them veiled in mist marvelous to tell and mingles with the people seen by no one um, and so we were talking about a little bit about this before the show because it's a little hard to nail down exactly why this is bad. Like these bees in the epic simile with Virgil are bad guys. They are the they are the uh, antagonists. They are the city of Carthage that is growing up uh, across from the city of Rome. They're going to become competitors, and we're sort of ret- retconning in the history of Rome a point at which uh, Rome and, Ver- and Carthage could have decided to cooperate and rule the Mediterranean together, and then they just didn't. Right? Hang they didn't. on, hang on. I need to interrupt you for a moment. But- is the whole episode with Dido in the Aeneid basically Virgil's way of saying, hey, Carthage, I did your mom? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and she loved it so much that she killed herself because <laughs> Basically, and then all the operas about it come after that. So yeah, so in the you know Aeneas and Dido have this grand passionate love affair, and Dido like begs Aeneas to stay with her so that they can become the lords of the Mediterranean together or whatever. And Aeneas is like, no, I have a destiny. Like I have to go to Rome, and I have to found Rome. Like this is something I have to do, um, and I can't stay. And as much as as pleasant as this is, and as awesome as this is, like I have to go do my thing, which is like very much like the the main authority he has is like you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of me. He doesn't really make too much of of a, a compelling argument, at least when I remember, um, about like why it would it, why it is better for him to be in Italy rather than in Africa, right? Like it's it's just like this is the thing that I have to do because this is who I am. 
right? Like, um, and in that way, I felt like uh, the scene where Pierce Brosnan is like, "You should do the thing that I'm doing," and then you know, I, I mean, they don't make love, <laughs> obviously. Uh, he doesn't like you know, and then throw him on a funeral pyre, but he does punch his blue little head out. So I guess that's sort of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, totally, yeah. <laughs> in a way, right? Yeah. And the, and, the, and the simile of the bees does travel through literature, but I don't think – one of the good things about the one in the Aeneid is that it, it, it shows you how beautiful the antagonist is. Mm-hmm. It shows you that like – it's sort of like in every sports movie where they have to face the Yankees at the end of the movie, and I'm like, why is this a problem? The Yankees are awesome. They throw up Yankee <laughs> right. fans. Uh, but everyone else is like, boo. Like part of it is you have to see the pinstripes under the lights, right? You have to like watch the slow swings of the evil Yankee slugger that Charlie Sheen is going to try to strike out. You have to recognize that the enemy is beautiful, right? And, and there's a sublimity to that and a power to that. Um, and like when Milton picks it up and uses it to talk about demons, right, like in hell, right, uh, it's, it's, not as, um, it's not as complex. It's not as textured as, the, as Aeneas port, you know, seeing the uh the carthaginians taking them in for the first time and much the same way that the characters in the world's end like come to sort of appreciate what the robots are doing despite their total lack of interest in getting involved in it yeah oh man it's interesting (laughs) so like the the (laughs) enemy the enemy force in uh certainly in world's end and in hot fuzz i would say is like is a certain kind of conformity and responsibility which is maybe a little bit especially in hot fuzz specifically british to the degree that like you kind of watch it and get what they're getting at without really being able to relate to it in quite the same way but in this one is more just about like being a a functional member of a global society right like having a having a decent paying job and and a wife and kids and so on um and an alcohol problem that is under control rather than one that is like <laughs> flopping all over the place <laughs> getting stains on the upholstery yeah. <laughs> and then the, their side right is is a certain kind of arrested development right um that in all three movies, the Simon Pegg character uh, sort of re- reaches out of tentatively and then gets pulled back into. Or rather, no, wait, that's, that's actually, that's dead wrong. In the first movie, yes, that's what happened. Like, Sean is stuck in his life. Um, he resolves to get his act together. And then at the end, he's gotten his act, like, 2% more together, and everyone is fine with this. Right? He still he's goes still play video games with his, uh, with his old buddy. Yeah, that's what he does most of the time, and this is great. In um, in Hot Fuzz, the way that it works is that uh, Simon Pegg starts totally competent. The Nick Frost character uh, is the one who is this man-child, and at the end, they sort of, like, step into man-child land. Again, like, it's, he's a little bit got his act more together, but they are still going to be watching Bad Boys 2 probably once a week, you know? <laughs> Which is not the action of a totally healthy adult. Right, right. Um, and then in this one, right, uh, the Simon Pei character is much, much, he's like, he's like Sean through the looking glass, right? He's, uh, he's, he wishes that he had his act as together as Sean has it. Um, and then again, he sort of confronts this, uh, this conforming force or whatever. And in this case, just tells it to sod off, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the world ends, and we're meant to read this as a happy ending. 
there's something very interesting there, right? Because the, the, the man child as the center of the comedy is not something that's unique to, uh, the work of Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright, and Nick Frost, right? It's everywhere. Like, every Apatow movie is that. Um, Ferris Bueller is kind of that in some ways. Uh, you, can, you can chase it all around. The way that it most typically works is that at the end, the character grows up. Right. And yeah. that's sort of the, the toll that we pay when we go to see a comedy is we're going to laugh at this person through the first like four reels of the film. And then in the fifth, they're going to grow up and, you know, you'll hear the, the clarinet of self-actualization in the background <laughs> and they'll make out with Tara Reid a little bit and then they'll get a job at the big uh, the big law firm or something like that. Now, a great example. We actually have an article of this on the site is about School of Rock. And, yeah. and Jack Black, right? And he, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what's going on, right? And he's, he, he enters some sort of responsible adulthood, but in his own, you know, delightful way. Uh, but he, he yeah, he's, he's no longer the uh, lovable rake that he was at the beginning. Right. And th- th- there's sort of like, there's almost a, a like a synthesis antithesis uh, uh, thing going on with it, right? Or a thesis antithesis synthesis thing going on with it, where uh, the, the true course has to be a little bit more chaotic than what everyone was doing, but it needs to be much more ordered than what the comic hero was doing. And the role of the comic hero in World's End strikes me as, as quite different. They're kind of like the canary in the mine shaft, right? But like that any social order that will not allow Gary King to get drunk and fall over while trying to jump a fence is a social order that has no place for any human being in it, right? And that's the big reveal at the end, right? Like, raise your hand if they didn't have to replace you with a robot, right? Yeah. And there's like three people. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like a, a libertarian slippery slope argument that's getting made. Uh, and it's, it's sort of like the, uh, the hustler writing about Jerry Falwell uh, Supreme Court case, right? Where you, you're supposed to sign on to it, not because there's anything admirable about what Gary King does, but that there's something admirable about a social order that allows Gary King to exist. And that strikes me as like, in some ways, a much more arguable and problematic claim to make than the kinds of claims that romantic comedies or comedies in general typically make. But it's such, it's such a gutsy claim, right? To say, like, look, this guy is a high-functioning drunk who wrecks everyone's lives, and we should be glad he's around because it shows that there's something right about our society. Uh, to have a, a comedy that has that much to say is, is just sort of, like, breathtaking and wonderful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so go back to what you were talking about earlier, Jordan, about the specific Britishness of, this, uh, of the conformity that has been criticized in these movies, particularly Hot Fuzz. Um, we do need to bring up the concept of the nanny state. Right, which is like yeah. what you see. What the network is the ultimate nanny state, right? And I just did a quick, wiki- <laughs> I just did a quick Wikipedia search here, and uh, it, it it reveals what I thought, which is that it is a term of British origin, uh, parentheses <laughs> and primary use, yeah. right? That's about like the overreaching government, stuff. yeah, yeah that, exactly. The, the squashes conformity, and uh, you know, it tells people what to do because they uh, they they don't know they they can't do any better than themselves. Uh, which is hilarious because that's not how the internet works, right? <laughs> like, in fact, it's much more akin to like a fox uh, pulling its guts out and, and screaming chaos reigns while a million billion porn videos loop in the background. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Meanwhile, listen, the internet, like, I kind of want to think, like, in, in a big, say, a big Reddit argument about politics, like, hey, look around. Who here is a sock puppet, a robot, or a paid contributor? Right? Like, who are people here are actual real people? And it'll be, like, four people, and everybody else is, like, you know, just totally part of the – because we live among imaginary people now, and we don't even notice them, you know, all over the place, paid by all sorts of different interests. I mean, it sounds really crazy, but it's, you know, it happens. Um, which is it always boggles my mind, definitely. Oh man! <laughs> so, any final thoughts about World's End? I mean, there's this is a really meaty movie. If you if you've listened all the way through and you haven't seen this movie, see it. It is very meaty. There is a lot to talk about. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff we didn't even really get into, like the relationship with Sam. We didn't really get into and the romance angle, right? Like, and the fact that the women in the movie are pretty underrepresented, which is always kind of the case in these kinds of things, and unfortunate. Um, but yeah, but like, I mean. But the- role that they play even as a secondary character again it's interesting to look at this versus like van wilder or something um you know uh or another like giant like huge issue that we that we didn't get into um the fact that at the end being a a robot turns out to be a totally acceptable thing to happen to you as a character yeah like yeah do the robots even Mm. have a point when they're not the hegemony anymore Right, like it's and and what does that mean? And I mean that's a whole other conversation to get into, which we sadly do not have time to get into right now. So, gentlemen, any final thoughts though before we uh, we wrap this up? Yeah, I'll just to, I want to praise the movie for being delightfully fun mm. uh, and creatively fun in a way that uh, you know you don't see in the other sort of big tentpole blockbuster movies that are playing it safe. Uh, to which I will point to. The robot that had uh, its legs attached to its arms and was swatting and attacking the character, which was just such a delightful moment that you would—I saw nothing of that sort in Man of Steel. I would have loved to see that in Pacific Rim, if like they just start taking the legs off of one robot and making them extra arms on the other robots. That was. One of the things that was interesting about this, especially because the whole uh, the whole meta structure of the movie is about like growing up and moving on and developing and failing to do that, is like looking at the fight scenes in this versus the fight scenes in Shaun of the Dead. Like Edgar Wright has come a long way as an action director, or he has hired a second unit director who is much better than whoever his second unit director was on the first one. <laughs> I want to look this up now and see who the second unit director of World Dead. Yes. Uh, Sick burn. Yes. <laughs> I'll give it just a second. Where's the full casting crew? Here we go. Come on, come on, IMDb. Come to Papa. Let's well, while you're do looking this. it up, Pete, just remind me uh, of this. Uh, Edgar Wright did direct uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, right? Yes. Which had a lot yeah, of stylized did. action, and I thought I, I haven't seen uh, Scott Pilgrim in a, in a while, but I felt some of that being reflected in, in the fight scenes in the World's End. Yeah. No totes. Yeah. So, yeah, so the second unit call. director for uh, for uh, World's End was Bradley James Allen, who has done a lot of kung fu stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And let's. So he he actually you know who he has done a lot of second unit directing for is uh, oh no he's a, he was a stunt man who did a lot of stunt stuff for Jackie Chan movies. Oh, um, that is an interesting. Now. He was the stunt choreographer on Shanghai Noon. Uh-huh. Uh, 
as well as a kicking double for Ron Smurenberg in Jackie Chan's Who Am I? <laughs> kicking double? That's a thing? Yeah, he is. He did the stunts in The Medallion and in uh, Rush Hour 2. Yeah, so so if, if, these, if these comical action sequences... So yeah, basically our, our hypothesis has been reinforced by the idea that like, yes, there's a little bit of Jackie Chan in this movie, in case you were curious. Um, he's done such, also done such movies as Kick-Ass, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and of course... Our beloved own Chronicles of Riddick. Riddick. Uh, <laughs> he the fights. So when when Riddick and is is using a knife against the Lord Marshal of the Necromongers uh, with great efficacy, you can thank uh, uh, Brad- Bradley. You can thank Bradley James Allen. And wow. all that remains wow. for us is to thank you and to thank our panel. So Mark and Jordan, thank you so much. This is this was a wonderful movie, and I was so glad to be able to talk about it with you guys, especially with Matt not here. Jeez, it's good no, to have I, the Five Musketeers all together. Yeah, the Five. Yeah. It's, I'm glad the Five Musketeers got through this unscathed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did call out early in the movie that two of them were going to die, right? Like they just sort of said that portentously, and then it happened, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, Matt will be back. He will return, and not in robot form. Although you'll have to, we'll have to administer a void conf test to him to make sure. <laughs> but um, if you want to talk about the world's end, if you have something to say about Mister Affleck taking to the skies of Gotham City via jumping and <laughs> grappling hooks, then we want to hear from you as well. Uh, and and also we've got another Breaking Bad recap coming up. So if you watch Breaking Bad, uh, we stream it live about eight p.m. Eastern time uh, on Monday night. So that'll be the night that this comes out, or the night after this comes out, depending upon when it loads. And um, and yeah. And yeah, for all this stuff, for comments, for conversations, for I've been told one of the more civil uh, article commenting communities on the entire internet, uh, where you'll f- always find a nice well actually that'll that'll challenge you, but never one that'll punch you in the face and turn it into blue goo. Please visit us on the web <laughs> at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Well, mates, it's good to be with you here at the podcast end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, it's like drink, drink, (laughs) drink. I, mean, I was really thirsty by the end of that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It, it made me want to go drink an irresponsible amount of beer. <laughs> and that that happens, the robots have already won. Yeah, that's true. <laughs>